From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. when we're thinking about environmental justice, we're thinking about the environmental hazards and environmental benefits and how they are inequitably distributed um, in the United States and around the world, uh, threatening the safety and the health um, and the integrity of poor communities and communities of color. Welcome back to the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. COVID-19 has given voice to disparities of class and privilege worldwide, foreshadowing those same inequities navigating climate change mitigation. Abigail Fleming, Miami Law's Fredman Foundation Practitioner-in-Residence, walks us through what needs to change. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Abigail. Thanks so much for joining us at The Explainer. Good morning. Thank you for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. Um, Globally, in the context of environmental and climate justice, where are the biggest threats to historically marginalized communities? Who is or who will feel the effects first? Well, when we're thinking about environmental justice, we're thinking about the environmental hazards and environmental benefits and how they are inequitably distributed um, in the United States and around the world. Uh, threatening the safety and the health um, and the integrity of poor communities and communities of color. Um, And these inequities are a direct result from policy choices um, reflected in environmental laws and regulations, as well as the compounding larger um, social and economic forces. Uh, Due Mm -hmm. to a history of systemic racism and, and segregation, uh, low-income communities and, and people of color have been burdened with high levels of pollution in their backyards. Um, and we, when we think about this in a global context, there is a similarly inequitable distribution of these hazards and benefits. Um, there's procedural unfairness in decision-making and inequity in the distribution of costs and benefits between developed countries and developing countries. Um, there's a definite power dynamic. Um, And as you can imagine, there is immense um, opposition from those in powers to global agreements that address environmental injustices. So when we're looking um, at different factors, whether that's the rise of economic globalization or unenforced or relaxed trade rules um, and the dominance of multinational corporations, these things have played a key role in shifting environmental pollution from industrialized to developing countries. And it's most prominently seen in the export of polluting industries and hazardous waste um, from developed countries to poor developing countries in Africa, South America, and Asia. Um, And again, this is all compounded by weak environmental regulation and and lax enforcement of the law. Um, And when we think about this in the context of climate change, which results from the burning of fossil fuels, the, the most significant crisis of our time, This will be felt most acutely by the poor and marginalized that are already um, holding and bearing all of these environmental burdens. So as temperatures and sea levels rise, um, vulnerable communities are experiencing natural disasters, weather extremes, uh, water and food food insecurity, um, and economic disruption. And again, these negative effects are going to be felt disproportionately by developing countries and poor populations around the globe. Uh, I think for our listeners, uh, one important note is that the United States is responsible for over 25% of the world's greenhouse gases, um, even though it constitutes only 4% of the world's um, population. 
And in contrast, developing countries who've only recently begun to industrialize, uh, their per capita emissions of greenhouse gases are, are comparatively low. Um, but when we're look, looking at the United States and fossil fuel dependency and this burden shifting, um, you know, our re- listeners need to note that the U.S. is one of the leading carbon contributors with the, the least progressive climate policies. Um, and looking around the globe, we can see how this impacts developing nations. Um, just looking at Africa uh, for a second, uh, the intergovernmental uh, panel on climate change expects that uh, Central America to ha- will have a decrease in the length of wet and, and spells and a slight increase in heavy rainfall. West Africa is going to be a climate change hotspot, uh, which will likely mm-hmm. lessen crop yields and production. Um, and w- as we know, will impact food security. Um, and these areas, they have fewer resources to respond and they stand to lose the most uh, ground in, in their development efforts. Um, so climate change is happening now to all of us and uh, no country or community is immune. And as always, is always the case, uh, the poor and the vulnerable are the first to suffer and, and they're going to be the worst hit. Great. Well, just this week, we're seeing farm workers in California picking in fields with dangerous air quality because of the fires. Where does the U.S. rank in addressing environmental justice? Is the needed needed planning and mitigating happening at the federal level, or is everything left to the states? So when we're, we're talking about um, addressing environmental justice and, and how we compare, we're thinking about how it we are enacting national laws that promote transparency, that promote accountability, um, that foster civic engagement in environmental decision-making. Uh, the U.S. is far behind, <laughs> whether we are looking at studies, whether we are looking at World Resource Institute, uh, they have an environmental democracy index, or we are simply skim- skimming the EJ Atlas at ejatlas.org. Um, it is clear that, that the U.S. is far behind other industrialized nations on environmental performance, um, and I, I believe ranks 24th in the world. Um, but, but that is not a surprise. We have an administration um, that many, I agree with, and many say is deliberately dismantling the existing framework of environmental protections that really safeguard this country's water, air, and, and public health. Um, low-income communities of color um, who again are, are disproportionately vulnerable to, to the weather events occurring. And because of that historic exclusion from political decision-making, um, these communities cannot prepare and, and respond. Um, and again, the U S as a leading carbon contributor, um, they don't, we have the least progressive policies. And I think what our listeners, um, need to, to remember and, and focus on is that at a federal level, the, the planning and the mitigating is not happening. Um, our, our leaders, our policymakers um, need to prepare and need to um, get into action. Um, there are states that are, are taking initiatives. Uh, recently in New Jersey, Governor uh, Phil Murphy uh, signing an env- environmental justice legislation that allows for states to deny permits for projects that would have that environmental impact on already overburdened communities. Um, but I, I do want to note to our listeners, it's, it's, it's not a matter of leaving it up to the states. Um, we have to, to come up with um, radical uh, transformation and policies. And we have to, um, at a federal level, coordinate with the states and see the individual needs of the states and, and provide a collaborative effort needed to combat climate change. Um, you know, the climate does not recognize political boundaries and, and neither should our, our climate policies. Um, if we want to, um, 
to limit the impacts that that we could face. We need rapid and far-reaching uh, transitions in land, in energy, in industry, buildings, transports, uh, cities. <laughs> um, all economies must eventually become less dependent on fossil fuel energy and, and really must invest in, in energy efficient alternatives. But that really needs to, to include participation um, by the humans that are going to be impacted um, that provides equitable access to benefits and protections and really acknowledges the unique experiences of these marginalized stakeholders and again, promotes meaningful uh, community involvement for um, representation and decision making. Okay, go vote. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Please go vote. That was in my action steps. (laughs) Um, Even here in South Florida, there's a long time story of burdening the least among us with things like toxic dumping and poisonous incinerators. Historically marginalized communities have also faced a scarcity of affordable housing and are faced with rising sea levels. Are we already seeing low income neighborhoods on high ground being shouldered out to make way for like more pricey development, like what's being done, what needs to be done? Yes. Um, a, a term that was, um, recently coined by Valencia Gunner, uh, with the new Florida majority is climate gentrification. And that occurs when areas more resilient to the effects of climate change, um, often such as those with higher elevations are targeted for development, uh, facilitating and exacerbating the displacement of many low to moderate minority communities. Um, and, most importantly for our listeners to understand, the communities are often displaced to areas where they are more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and have diminished access to resources and opportunities. Um, And we are seeing this happen in South Florida, uh, commonly identified low-income, high-elevation areas such as Liberty City, Overtown, Alapata, Little Havana, and Little Haiti. Um, And the the complexities with uh, gentrification are, um, many argue that there are many factors that lead to gentrification. Um, And as Mm -hmm. you can probably um, imagine, developers... do not look at high elevation as the reason for where they were, they want to develop. They look at, they say it's many other factors, not just high elevation. So there's a lot of debate uh, around how gentrification happens and when it's happening. Um, so with, um, with that, the EJC has, instead of focusing on the many factors that could lead to gentrification, we've the EJC being the environmental justice clinic. Um, so rather than focusing on the many factors that lead to gentrification, the environmental justice clinic at UM law, we focus on alleviating the, the main unwanted consequence of gentrification, right? Which is the displacement of people and in particular, low to moderate income minority communities. And displacement occurs when the development causes the involuntary location of households and businesses. And one way the clinic is, is trying to combat that is through providing uh, policy resources to our community stakeholders. Um, one thing that we're in the process of development uh, developing is the displacement vulnerability and mitigation tool. And it's designed to assess and mitigate the risk of displacement of protected classes and, and vulnerable populations created by proposed developments, as well as access and promoting the incorporation of resilient design aspects into these proposed developments. And this is something that would take place at the city and county permitting process. So if a developer comes in and and wants to to put a development in a certain 
community, they have to go through this um, tool and it uses an evaluation form to really look at, gather data on the community, see how vulnerable the community is to displacement, and then work with the community on mitigation strategies. Um, this semester, my students are doing multiple series of workshops and meetings to obtain input from community leaders um, into the design and function of the tool. And we hope to finalize it at the end of fall and provide it to municipalities for tailoring. Um, the, the, the tool is very flexible. It can be used for all different types of developments and it can be used in, in any community that's, that's worried about a potential development um, displacing their residents. Any last thoughts? Well, I want to tell our listeners um, when it comes to what can be done, um, it takes community voice and participation. It takes empowering those around you. Um, and we must see an, a radical change in how we invest and where we invest um, because what we choose to invest in is what will be given power. We need to make sure that when development um, or change comes into a community, uh, that there is fair treatment, access, opportunity for all people. Uh, the principle of equity, though, we need to acknowledge um, that there is that systemic racism and there is that history um, of oppression in, in these communities. And we need to work to address those and to build up and empower these communities um, so that they can be resilient and, and sustainable, that they can build wealth and that there are pathways for individuals, for business owners um, to work, grow and thrive. Otherwise, get your rowboats ready, right? Exactly. <laughs> Water is coming. Thanks so much, Ivica. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Thank you, Catherine. Again, I'm so honored to be here. Have a good day. See you later. Bye now. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's upcoming 45th Annual Condo and Development Law Conference on October 29th and 30th. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash Boyer.